Hello and welcome to the History and Theory podcast, a student-led project that aims to make historical theory easy and accessible. We are James, Michael, Carlos, Alex, and Julia. Today in the History and Theory workshop, Alex and I are joined by Rob and Diego to discuss Guy Debord's The Society of the Spectacle. Make sure to visit our website, which you can find in the description. But for now, enjoy the episode. So we're here to talk today about Guy Debord, Society of the Spectacle. Um, and since this is the history and theory group, the history about it, which is, uh, they note in the, I don't know how to say his name, Anselm Yap, Yap book? Anyway, he notes that the history is maybe the least considered part of the book. Um, people talk about the art criticism, and if people know about uh, the situationists, they know that. Mm-hmm. But the history is kind of like the bedrock of his theory, and it gets at some problems in Marxist theory that we've struggled with so far, so I think it's very useful to bring together. Uh, I just want to say, so he's a French writer, thinker. Uh, he was kind of around these like art circles and salons in Paris. He was never a professor. He was never a professional, uh, but he was pretty well known in just these kind of circles. I've never lived in Paris, but <laughs> so I hear this is a common thing there, or a somewhat common thing. Uh, he was the head of a group called the Situationists, uh, who are maybe known, um, but if you don't know them, then you definitely know of the type of art or the stunts that are inspired by them. These kind of like rearranging advertisements, these kind of like, you know, kind of uh, performance art demonstrations. Um, this rings any bells. A lot of it goes back to them in the 60s. Guy Debord himself was a very, was, uh, his thought was very rooted. So there's one strand in art theory and modern art, uh, then also in Marxist theory. And he considered himself a Marxist, which is definitely relevant for the history side of things. Uh, he wrote relatively sparingly. This is definitely his most famous book. This was published in 1967. Uh, of course, May 1968 happens, uh, and the board and the Situationists become kind of famous from that because it gets a little complicated. A lot of the slogans from May 68, which I think people know, the kind of things like Under the Sidewalk, Under the, the Sidewalk beach. is the Beach, uh, Be Reasonable, Demand the Impossible, these kind of mm-hmm. student slogans that are famous on the walls. A lot of those, where they came from the situations directly or were inspired by them, um, there's even a debate whether they even understood Debord at all. They just like this idea. He's the one who says we can come up with these cool sayings. Um, their profile was really raised by that. Uh, there weren't a lot of situationists, but there were, a lot of them were students, and they kind of had plans. They, there was a well-known sh- stunt in Strasbourg in 1966 or something, and they got some profile from that. Anyway. Um, but the book, certainly, regardless of what people think about the theory, seemed prophetic coming out in 67 and May 1968 happening mm-hmm. because, um, to put it very simply, he advocates for kind of a spontaneous mass uprising, which to students in May 1968 certainly seemed like it was coming true. Um, so today I want to talk about two main things. Um, of course, I'm open to ideas, but this is what I had in mind. Uh, the first would be this idea of uh, Marxist theory that we've been doing the past few weeks. Um, we've been very confused by Althusser <laughs> and these kinds of things. Um, and de Bord was, um, his theory was highly influenced by Lukash, who, as if we're to believe this book from Yap, was kind of in vogue in the 60s, especially in France. And Lukash famously, when he wrote History and Class Consciousness, what, 1923, I think, he famously disowned it and said, refused to publish it, 
people were like installing the censors or what. In the 60s, uh, Lukács wrote a long introduction, I think to the German version. He wrote a long, he says he couldn't avoid it being republished, but he said, okay, if you're going to republish it, then I'm going to have a long introduction of why it's all wrong. And so Lukács <laughs> said, um, his failure to distinguish between alienation and reification, what that means is, uh, in reality, alienation only exists when the essence of man comes into conflict with his existence. And from this, he says, we need a Marxist ontology. So that's the problem. What is being and what is human nature in Marxism? Uh, Althusser seemed to, from the structuralist side of things, that history doesn't have a subject, it's just a process that happens. And of course, in Marxism, there's a subject, proletariat, that's going to make history. But that's complicated, right? A lot of the uh, approaches as historians that we come to with Marxism is that, well, is that oversimplifying? What about this? What about that? How do you understand? Who's really the actor here? It gets quite complicated. So I think uh, Debord's contribution in that sense is definitely trying to grapple with this problem. Mm -hmm. Is there a subject? What does it mean? If the spectacle is really all-encompassing, the whole world, then how do you get a subject outside the spectacle who's going to break it down? And if they're in the spectacle, does that mean they're an object, a subject? All these questions, right? So we can think about how that's helpful. Um, the second would be the idea of history. De Borde mentions history in this, like, history for him is really this revolutionary feeling. It's his most revolutionary act to be a historical person. Um, so as historians, what does that mean for us when we write history? When we tell history, why is it valuable? Um, Good questions. Not sure I have any answers. <laughs> yeah. Before we start, we can come back to them. Maybe yeah. we can just discuss a bit. Before we start, do you know where he studied, and if that's helpful to us? It might all? be. I'll look it up. Because sometimes that's helpful. Probably. Sometimes that's helpful. Probably Paris. Probably Paris. Yeah. Yeah. He he hung around like northern Italy in the late fifties and early sixties as well, and that's also from from where a lot of situationists come from. But he wasn't like part of academia at all. Sure. He was not in that in that world. It just says University of Paris. Okay. On right. Wikipedia. Sure. And he was born in 1931, so that makes him 36, 37. So maybe a little older than the student groups. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sure. Do we maybe want to start by establishing what's going on? <laughs> yeah. In uh, in those chapters that we read, because I did struggle. Um, quite a bit and I think I mean at the heart of, of the whole text is his treatment of time right mm -hmm. and what time is and and what what how it changes um, and I think if we establish that then then we can discuss a little better what what actually is going on so all I will say to that from a logistic <coughs> perspective is that my first idea was let's read chapters five and six because that's the idea of time I added, or said, let's also read the beginning of chapter four, because that explains the Marxist Hegelian dialectic background stuff. Yeah. Which I think at the beginning someone said, like, let's read something from Hegel, let's read something from Lukash. Mm. And I was the one who's like, well, this talks about both. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what you all were getting into. You, if, I don't know if you knew what you were getting into. <laughs> um, so that's, we can talk about his interpretation of Hegel, if that makes sense, if Marxism makes sense. And then what what he's doing? <laughs> Number seventy nine, actually, I have written down the inseparability of Marxist theory from the Hegelian method exactly. itself, inseparable from that theory's revolutionary nature. That is from its truth. Yeah. So from, if a from if, it, if a, like from its truth. So 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 if a theory is revolutionary, then it's true. Uh, well, I think what he's meaning there is it's it's a. Um, 
it's kind of jumping into these Marx-Hegel debates. He's, I mean, a little later. But Bernstein, uh, Bernstein, I guess it would be, he was with the German SPD. And as he's saying there, he's saying Marx, you know, when he wrote Das Kapital, he really understood it. But in his early years, he was Hegel and these young Hegelians, and he was confused by all of that. And that's, mm-hmm. and Debord's saying, no, the connection to Hegel is what's most important. Because Hegel has a theory of how the world changes, how history happens, how time happens. Mm-hmm. And Debord is just saying that that's, uh, that's the most important part of Marx. So it's inseparable from Hegel. Sure. But um, yeah, I mean, I, can't, I, don't, I haven't got which thesis it is written down, but there's a bit where he says that all theoretical currents grow out of critical confrontation with Hegelian thought, which is my, like a pretty intense claim, no? unless you <laughs> think that like the only worthwhile theoretical thought is revolutionary. Also Eurocentric, but let's not get into that. Also Eurocentric. That's something I ask myself too a lot. Whether Debord seems quite—he's quite Eurocentric. Mm. Uh, I mean, that's, that's his time. I would yeah, assume. Yeah, but uh, um, Paris is the hotbed of intellectual thought and revolutionary. I will say, as a, I feel a little defensive of Debord because <laughs> we should say personally, he was very intense. The Situationists, like he, everyone was kicked out over a course of ten, fifteen years. It was always divisions, and he had a very strict. You have to understand the theory. Uh, so don't feel bad if, if you also don't do so. Uh, a lot of people didn't. I, I will just say that it, it echoes what, uh, in one of our classes, we're reading The Wretched of the Earth, Fanon now. And of course, it's not Eurocentric, but it's a similar idea that like there's some action you do in Fanon's, it's violence against the colonizer. And in that, you will reclaim history and re-understand yourself as a living, breathing person. And I think that's definitely shares a... Um, resonance with what Debord's saying. He doesn't say violence specifically, but he's like, people have to be, understand that they're historical. But is his uh, like act, this act of history, which helps you reclaim yourself, then revolution? The question is what, yeah, I mean, but the question is what act exactly. Uh, he gets into some examples later, but in terms right. of the theory part, knowing that history is, we can talk about that as a practice of history, knowing that history is real and happening, it's not just some, they can sound like fanciful tales. Mm. Because well, he also talks about history being a science in number 81. Yeah. But he says then, or he writes then, that it seeks to understand struggles and not laws. But then I don't really understand this because that isn't what science, at least in our conception of what science is, seeks to do. Like science does seek to put down laws. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, but it says. Um, Marx's theory is closely linked with scientific thought insofar as it seeks a rational understanding of the forces that really operate in society. I think that's what he means by the struggle, like a rational understanding of the of the forces, mm. and he identifies that as social struggles. And so that doesn't necessarily equate um, finding laws or sociological laws. Does that make any sense? Uh, I think so. I mean, so. because one one thing is, say, dynamic struggles. They don't, like, always operate on the same basis or don't always, like, express themselves in the same ways. Laws, on the other hand, would necessarily, mm. by definition, always operate on the same basis, express themselves necessarily in the same way, would be constant. So, so the scientific part, he's talking about more the method rather than what's actually being observed. I guess you could say that. Like I mean, he, of, of he definitely sees uh, science in a similar way to, um, this is my interpretation, I don't think he quotes it, but like, you know, the famous Marx quote in the Feuerbach, like, philosophers have only interpreted the world. He points to change it. Philosophy then is kind of like a bourgeois science with this filter. It can only interpret the world. Mm-hmm. I think, he, I think he, he would say something similar about science. It's just like, 
these are the way things are. What that means, why that's important, we can't say because we're like, you know, an unequal society, but all the other leftist stuff that follows. <laughs> He's very concerned with what the meaning of society, what the meaning of life for people could be. Um, not to jump us around, but that's certainly what he's getting at in terms of, in chapters five and six, he talks about like religious conceptions of time versus the modern conception of time. And, and this is what I mean by the Marxist ontology question. So, because Marx has a quote, uh, the critique of religion is the first, I forget what it is, the first critique that must be made is a critique of religion. Because it's like changing how people relate to the world. And it's a different value system for why anything matters. Right. And in this case, it's for the you know, well-being of all people. And Du Bois is also doing something similar. Like, science isn't for the well-being of all people. Uh, the idea of history, or living historically, is something every person can do. So almost every person can be a historian, maybe. In that sense, that's how we can interpret it. So is that why they recognize only one science, the science of history? Yeah, I think so. Right. In a really, like, simplistic overview, I think, and we already mentioned that five and six deal basically with, yeah, time and history, and four deals more with, like, what's the agent of that time and history, or what's, like, the ideal agent, or the... Right. I don't know how to say it. And the answer uh, is the proletariat. Yeah, I mean, th there, there's, like, a like embedded contradiction, because the proletariat is, like, the agent that creates history, but in a constrained way not mm. to like its full extent or not in a free way or not etc because proletariat creates all the conditions of of society it produces and reproduces society but not willingly only because it's forced to do so so yes it creates history mm. on one side but uh, in, in a constrained or coercive way on the other because it's a product of its environment famously in Marxist because it's it's the underclass so no one, I mean, all work organized in society, again, produces and reproduces this society, but not because we all actually want to, because we have to survive in order to do this. So that's, I think, like one of the main contradictions there. And yeah, I mean, I, I still struggle to understand how the spectacle plays into this. I, I understand it more as like, like something that alienates even further the proletariat from, or just everyone even the bourgeoisie from from like our relationship to history, to time, to to how we can like create and recreate society. But then what is this the spectacle itself? Um, yeah. I mean do you want do we wanna establish what time is before we <laughs> establish what no, because I feel like Sure, yeah we got That's to, a good question. Because yeah, I, I feel like I feel like um, the spectacle is a version of how time is perceived. Yeah, I would agree I think. Yeah, but what is time? I mean, I, I just had loads of problems with how he conceived of time. Like in one two, ah, still in one two five. There's uh -huh. this idea of like natural history existing only through the process of human history. Yeah, one twenty five. Yeah, one twenty five. And then in either that one or maybe it's one twenty six, he talks about how cyclical time is common among nomadic peoples, but you know the implication there is not among civilized peoples. Yeah, and then. On like on top of that, how nomadic people are idle in there, like because of this conception of time they had in comparison, again to civilized peoples. As a, uh, so his comparison is in comparison to people who already have agrarian labor. Yeah. So I mean, there's already so many things wrong with these. Yeah, I mean, ideas, no? <laughs> I think as a historian, the one big problem I had with this whole ride through history is that there's 
zero sources. <laughs> he just yeah. says they thought time was like this, and that's what they thought because I say so. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely one of those philosophers. Like, wasn't it Wittgenstein or someone who's saying like, I don't need to use sources? Or something? <laughs> I don't quote. Yeah. Yeah. So, so no, I mean it. It has to do with with the style that he that he's written. You know, I mean the text is uh, definitely not. It's not historiography. It's not like conventional like theory either. It's just like thesis like one after the other so he quotes every once in a while like Marx <laughs> yeah. yeah and like Shakespeare at least like the epigraph of this and chapter. very like random American sociologists like, uh-huh. as Norman Cohn thought he had demonstrated <laughs> like, so I can I mean I can give what I got from it in terms of what time is mm-hmm. my understanding was that his conception of that his idea of linear time is that linear time underpins like these processes of domination and that this idea of kind of the arrow of time is what keeps hierarchies in place because right at the end of the section that we read he talks about this federation of independent times mm-hmm. and that seemed to be his solution so I feel like these two stand in contrast to one another the linear time underpins these hierarchies in society, in society and his federal federation of independent times is what will liberate people that was what I kind of understood um, and yeah that this idea of a unified linear time on in number 145 is only <clears throat> it's only a unified time because of the global market and that it's just economic production cut into abstract fragments so that was my overall understanding of his idea of times like I, his kind of history of how different people have produced time i think that's like the most so yeah. like the most abstract thing and i didn't really find that that useful to understanding what he actually thought time was now mm. or in you know 67 but willing to be proved wrong. Yeah, I, I'd say that the like the starting like theoretical point of all this is that um, time is produced differently throughout time. So nomadic people had like a specific production and understanding of time. Then, uh, like the first agrarian societies. Then through um, there's one thesis that talks about like how it was reappropriated through Christianity. Then and monotheism. And then the Middle Ages, and finally, yeah, the bourgeoisie, and, and eventually the like globally unified uh, absolute time of the economy. And it also has something to do with, with how a group or a society relates and participates with that time. in history, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's how time is made, because he's got that whole point about how for the agrarian society, for most of the farmers, time was mm-hmm. cyclical exactly. because that's they didn't participate in history, mm-hmm. whereas the, the, the ruling classes were, participated in history, so they had linear time for themselves. Mm-hmm. So this is what, how I got to the idea that linear time uh, backs up these... I think you're right. I think so. So I think there's two ways to look at it, um, or two analogies maybe that, that I use in my head. First, it's, like, it's almost a rephrasing of like Nietzsche saying God is dead. What that means is like you can't go back to this other way of thinking. And I think Debord would say that what they mean by that is that we, we know time exists. We're not like, think of an animal. An animal doesn't know it's going to die. It doesn't know. Or you know what? I can't like see ahead. An animal just like eats, you know, and like... Eventually dies. Eventually dies. Maybe uses a tool. Like tools are like the big step, right? Mm-hmm. It's like biologists were like, you know, how animals use tools is like showing or something. Um, <laughs> but that's like, for Debord, that's like some transition point that like, 
when we're aware, when as human beings, we have to narrativize our life, our living, what it all means, mm. then this is a problem for him. And to hold that in place, exactly, hierarchy. It's like, well, I'm working to make this better for this, the boss, the king, whatever it might be. And for Marx, so I think that's generally maybe another way to think about it, this like time thing, it's sort of like a shattering of you know, time going forward. Um, and the fact that you can't go back is I think definitely like part of the fundamental part of Marxist, like the orthodox Marxist thought, where it's not that the, parla uh, the proletariat goes back to the past. They say they, they take all the gains of the bourgeoisie and realize, I mean, that the proletariat itself is produced for the bourgeoisie, you know what I mean? But that the bourgeois era has created whatever it's technology, tools, life itself, and that like takes it for itself. An interesting phrasing he uses a lot is the surplus value of time, uh -huh. um, which I think really ties it together. Because it's like the time, you only get however many years in your life, and you got to spend whatever, 50%, 40% working or whatever it might be for people. And like that sort of time being taken away from you and you don't know why. In the same way that when you work, you just gotta work, you don't know why, you gotta make this thing, you mm. know, you're alienated from it. So in the same sense, we're human now, we experience time. In the same way that the proletariat's like, we made this, we should enjoy it. The time is we live because you know people, rulers, all of a sudden started organizing society that way. So we might as well enjoy it while we have it. But, <laughs> but I, I would you, would feel you, free to. What do you mean by, by we made it, we enjoy it, and but like um, specifically with reference to time? Because what I don't understand, like I kind of understand this theory, whether I agree with it or not, but I don't get then how some kind of Marxist theory or some kind of revolution could change this because you're still going to be like working, for example, towards the same things. Like there's not going to be no work. Right. But the, the idea is that you're not alienated from the work. So some examples from me that, that were useful in thinking about this in the book um, is I like the example of the millenarian, millen, millenarian, is yeah, it, yeah, that yeah. you say? Uh, and how they conceived a revolution and how, you know, the birth of monotheistic religions um, and maybe even the, like, obsession with death in the Middle Ages. And all of these things are, like, this is, like, a slowly creeping sense that we're living this time going on, but how, what are we supposed to do about it, like... I was just born here and whatever whether you're a peasant or a worker or whatever and then how do you relate to this world um, and that the idea that uh, there's a kingdom of God coming soon time is given it's not meaningless anymore it's something is coming in the future mm -hmm. whatever it is you know Jesus coming back to life or and whatever another religions but it gives an event it gives like a meaning to it and he's saying that that's a false meaning that that's imposed to like you know allow people to keep it's ideological it's ideological sure so um, it's used as a, as a weapon to to keep the structures in place sure like, okay like said. but then so then the question would be I forget what I was what I was responding to but the point is I think it's interesting when you use these examples and even if you have the millenarians who are like this is fucked up things need to change we're going to do something they still how do you how do they conceive of it they conceive of it that there is some great utopia out there it's when, you know, they're very religious, so it's when we die, it's in God's kingdom. Mm. But he's saying that that fundamental alienation is the same thing in Marx. That's saying they didn't realize that this utopia they're looking for is their life here on earth. That if, if only they could be in control of it themselves, rather than directed by, you know, the masters, the bosses, the bourgeoisie. Yeah, you can get you you get uh, bogged down in a lot of the specifics here. So, what, what did you guys think of those examples? Because like the first time I read it, which was uh, a couple of years ago now, 
like those examples were what clicked it for me. I'm like, oh yeah, that is interesting. Why did they think that way? Like the millenarians or, you know, why was the Middle Ages obsessed with death? I mean, there's the, you know, Black Plague, the Black, whatever it's called. The Black plague, Death. Black death, death, Plague. What does that mean for people? It started to make sense to me when I started mm. thinking about those examples. I mean, I had, I, this is 138, right? Thesis 138. I honestly, what I wrote next to it was a timeline all over the place because he starts by making a statement about the Middle Ages, I think. Then he talks about the peasant revolts, which were, I mean, not to get too historian, but that's early modern times. <laughs> and then he talks about Augustine, who was pre-Middle Ages. Yeah, Augustine, yeah, I think Augustine doesn't fit in your head. Uh, but I mean, that's just I think, <laughs> nitpicking stupid stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if it's sourced better, then maybe it'd be clearing. I mean, isn't his real point in that in that thesis just to kind of criticize religion? I think I think that's the real point. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that he's somehow um, <clears throat> empath like sympathetic to the millenarian peasantry. Yeah, I think I think what he's trying to say is um, they try to. They tried to break away from the ideological time construction that Christianity had given them, which is there's gonna be the kingdom of God someday, but now you work until you die. And they said, no, we want the kingdom of God here and now. And the, the, their, their only mistake was that they didn't realize that that kingdom of God was an illusion. I think their mistake, according to him, was phrasing it in religious terms, in ideological terms, so not fully escaping mm. ideology yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah, we're, yeah. Not, we're getting into the historical weeds. I don't know. Du Bois says that they hesitated to act until they'd received some external sign of God's will. It was an ideological corollary to the insurgent peasants' practice of following leaders from outside their own ranks. So, yeah, the, the line that summarizes the best for me is that it's revolutionary class struggle speaking the language of religion for the last time. This definitely echoes early Marxism, because Marx said or scientific socialism, you know, there have been all these utopians of, uh, whatever, name some, <laughs> Robert Owen, and so Marx is saying that, like, they're pure at heart, you know, kind of thing, but there's no idea, as I'm putting my words in Marx's mouth, that, that no, no, there's, they're pure at heart, but <laughs> they don't have a theory for how these things work, and I think that Du Bois analyzing the millenarians is an early form of that, you know, they're like, why can't it seem to work, why can't, this thing we all wanted, why can't it happen, you know? So this idea that like nomadic time was cyclical, mm. which I don't agree with, or the agrarian time, which I can, which kind of I have less stick with, that you're kind of just working, doing... Why, why don't you agree that nomadic time is cyclical? I mean, I just don't think he has any basis for saying that. <clears throat> and I think if we're talking about like <clears throat> time being linear and there being some kind of endpoint, mm -hmm. then surely earlier peoples who didn't have civilization in quote marks to the extent that we understand it also still had a linear conception of time in comparison to I, like i can see why agrarian production like agrarian peasant workforces could be cyclical because you're doing the same thing day in day out to kind of you know grow food for these people who you probably never know, never even see and you have there is no end point but what i don't understand is how that's different to the proletariat, who surely are doing the same thing, but just under different circumstances. Surely that's also cyclical time. He, he, I don't remember what, what thesis it is, but towards the end of the chapter he says that it's pseudo-cyclical time. So pseudo-cyclical time. 
the predatory the predator, term. Yeah, yeah. Ah, okay. And so what I think I don't I really don't remember if he if he mentions this or not, but it made sense to me, it clicked to me in this way, is that agrarian societies are cyclical because their time is not uh, marked or set by a clock, by abstract time. It's set by the cycles of the earth. You know, so you have there's a harvest, there's um, whatever follows it. I don't know the so word in English. Yeah, so <laughs> um, ah, there's a springtime, there's a summer, there's etc. There's all those things, and, and if you're in 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 the tropics, then it works differently. There's like the rainy season, the dry season, etc. Hmm. That's how time operates in pre-modern societies basically when there's like no abstract notion of time that's why they're cyclical because that happens every year and that's why calendars were organized in that way but it's not abstract time also organized by natural phenomena no i mean like cutting the day into like equal parts is not it's cyclical in as okay. much as it you know so that part sure is abstract. but but it's but it's completely separated from the cycles of the earth and from it's it's detached from anything it can be applicable anywhere in the in the world that's the point of abstract time hmm. and and yeah so the proletariat uh, work as we know it since the 19th century is also detached from from the earth from the cycles of the earth you know you can work during the day you can work during the night you can work in the springtime you can work in the winter etc you can do it regardless of what the environment or its conditions are so that's that's why I think it's like pseudo cyclical and the spectacle only, only like reinforces that the that like false or alienated aspect of it because it tells you that ah yeah there's still a like a day and a night there's actually a part where he says that like day and night holidays or months worth of vacation I don't know but those things are like not attached to anything people still can work during the day or during the night during the holidays or Hmm. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. I, I think that's why he uses pseudo-cyclical at the end. And that being like the type of time that directs life nowadays or the proletariat's life nowadays. So maybe it does get more... Maybe it does get explained later in the book, but then he right at the end of the section that we read, he talks about this federation of independent times. Mm-hmm. How, how would that work? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, imagine like a commune. That's this is the other thing. I, I imagine like his notion of communism is definitely not Stalinism. It's definitely not statist. Mm. Yeah, that's correct. the rest of chapter four we skipped. Correct. You could have read it all if you want. It's very. <laughs> but yeah, it's not. It's very specific about the socialist history. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. No, he's he's like very critical of of the USSR. He's like that's not communism. That's state capitalism. Uh, okay. and that's how it should be understood and not only the USSR I imagine also Cuba and mm. other all state socialism is in fact state capitalism that's basically his thesis with regards to that easy way out do you guys have a <laughs> I mean we had that last week <laughs> yeah, last time, yeah. do you guys have a response Other, otherwise I would say maybe we should be talking about time to talk about the spectacle uh, that was just about to ask I feel yeah. like we've we've kind of We've covered time. We've covered, covered time. time. No. You're not, we're not, we're not going to solve it now. <laughs> just, so one note I will say, I will just add this because it's a, you don't get it in this book. Because I was always asking, when, okay, what exactly is the spectacle? He wrote a supplement book, Comments on the Society of the Spectacle, which is a big deal because he doesn't usually write. It's published in 1988. And he said, when I wrote the first book, it had been scarcely 40 years since the spectacle began. 
was published in 1967, so mid to late 20s, uh, which for me, I would say uh, personally the rise of fascism, but for him is certainly the um, rise of Stalinism in the USSR. Okay. Um, that like ended the like you know movement of history basically. Yeah. So I, that's the spectacle. It would make s- the new version. So the spectacle is fundamentally the same. It's still capitalism. Um, I, if you read chapters two and three, I'm going to stop referencing other chapters. Um, um, I didn't understand it at all. This explained that it's building on Lukash's theory of the commodity, and now the commodity is all ruling. It's everywhere. It's not just you know. It's a much bigger form than it was uh, in the, the Marxist time. Yeah, um, and that it entered this phase in the mid late 1920s. Um, so is this just a synonym for the system? Just what? what a what synonym for the like system? system? As in the system of government? or uh, No, I mean, it's a way system. to like understand the world and what's possible, I guess. Because, I mean, if we look back now to the like late 1800s, early 1900s, um, and again, this is very Eurocentric, so keep that in mind, uh, that that was kind of like the end of... Well, I mean, okay, just think about Europe, for example. That's when people say, oh, you know, Europe's no longer revolutionary, now they're you know, pampered uh, classes, you know, they're the um, colonized people do the, are the real proletariat, they do the work. Um, I mean, that's what kind of uh, conventional, more conventional histories say, and it's kind of lining up around the same time. I don't know what you guys think. No, one one thing that came to mind, I I wasn't aware of, like, that that he actually pointed to, like, a decade or a moment when the spectacle actually started to exist. But yeah, it kind of makes sense that it was like in the Roaring Twenties, that's like when mass culture started to be produced, either in like proto-fascist states or in the United States. I think that's, you know, despite of like the emergence or like outburst of mass culture being like the 1940s and the 50s, post-World War II, uh, I think that like the Twenties is like when it starts to like prefigure, like through publicity, through... Uh, media through cinema through uh, radio at least at the beginning afterwards with television and yeah I mean I don't I also don't know like the the exact definition but it's like a mediated relationship of humanity it's it's the thing that that like stands in between humans be it publicity be it the internet I think the internet is like the perfect example of what the spectacle is I don't know if he was like thinking about it in the 80s but it's I don't know it's um it's something that's basically like made out of images. You know, I mean, there's text and whatnot, but more and more so out of out of images. And it's something that that separates humanity, that alienates us from each other. What? Why? Why? What? What? Why? Why <laughs> does this idea of like some kind of spectacle, this idea of imagery, alienate us from one another? I can't answer that. I have the same question. <laughs> he would say it's not historical. That the fundamental meaning is a human essence. Again, this goes back to the Marxist ontology question. It's that any animal that realizes time exists becomes man, mm-hmm. basically, in like this framework. Like, and that's the situation we found ourselves in. And everything of like looking at images, it all like you don't you don't really you can look at a history book and say that happened in the past. This happens now. What does it really affect you? Is it like oh, look at those people in the 1800s, looks like a meme to me or something. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's how I used to look at things, right? Like, because it's like, what does it really mean? How can you really put yourself in that, in that position? I think the board is getting at, 
to be human is to be is to live historically. He certainly doesn't say it's impossible with the internet for for there to be a proletarian revolution. Whether he's optimistic or pessimistic, I don't know. But like, it's not about there just has to be this kind of culture. It's like you whatever the culture is is it's about like living historically or not being alienated from the fact that time life goes on society changes that's so funny yeah i mean <laughs> okay wait but so 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 the spectacle would be the thing that alienates us from the awareness that that time passes as history and history is struggles suppression of the proletariat the actual work that is being put into the time that we consume that also the fact that we're the ones or at least in ideal terms the one who who create history that's also another thing that, that the spectacle like alienates us from i i see or i as, as far as i interpret it I, i mean i don't have like a like an answer for your question like why images i don't think it's just like like abstract images you know not not like a painting or you know a photograph or whatnot it's more like the way images are produced and the way they circulate and the way uh, like the the purpose that they fu like fulfill or are meant to fulfill he's not like a traditionalist uh, in the sense of like you know photography is wrong we should go back to you know just like sketching and drawing or this kind of stuff so because the, he does have this art tradition i mean it's like that's what he's most well known for being in these art circles and uh they get into it in this book but He was, if there was a moment in art that he was most like intensely uh, supportive of, it was like surrealism, Dadaism, um, which again is, I guess, around the 1920s. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, because it felt like they were breaking the forms of art, you know, it's sort of like, they're like, why do we paint this thing? Why do we think it's beautiful? You know, and I feel like with Dadaism, he was almost like approaching the, the edge of like, Oh, but we really just like expression and like, you know, and anyone can do this and it's not the museum, it's this and it, you can break all the rules and this sense of breaking all the rules was I think what he liked about it. Then he writes it was quick, quickly changed, you know, this moment passed, but that's sort of his example. It's worth pointing out when we're talking about images and stuff that he's very, as a, as a background in art. Is this a big problem not just with like the mass production of culture then? Is that essentially not what we're talking about here? Just the commodification of culture and of art, however that gets defined, is that not what he's talking about as being this spectacle which alienates us and stands in the way of us actually achieving this yes, culture revolution? I mean, yes, culture and arts definitely, but also like... But specifically the commodification of it is... But also experiences. There's, there's one thesis towards the end of chapter six, I think, where he talks about how um, there's like pre-arranged packages for of like tourism and experiences and etc mm. that that he would include i mean that doesn't form part of art or culture even you know like mass tourism is not i wouldn't identify it as like culture but but it's it's that it's like prefabricated experiences that forms part of the spectacle and that okay. he would identify as like and like an alienated experience that it's something that detaches you from reality to some extent so it is essentially like The commodification of but all of these things is beyond. I think it's it's that's part of it, but even more so. Um, I mean, that's just a commodified experience, uh, right? That's all we get. That's yeah. all. That's not like doing it yourself, whatever that means. That's having, as you said, like this prefabricated, prepackaged experience, which is the same as you know anyone being able to go out and buy an art print, for example, or mm -hmm. mass culture getting spread through the internet for 
like yeah. uh, for the cheese example we used earlier. So surely this is a big problem then. Well, everybody being able to order a martini and being like, I'm bond or something yeah. like that, yeah. Which, Which is, I don't understand why he sees that as a problem. Surely that's the I mean, yeah. democratization of, of these things. Yeah, there yeah. could be those elements of it. I do think he's a little negative about it, but I think it's, we need to point out that it's not, it didn't just start with the commodification the spectacle started, according to him, in this like early, whatever you want to call it, 1920s. But the spectacle is just the like new form of the like commodity which capitalism created to like, that's the idea of commodity fetishism, right? It's all about, everything's a commodity. It's not mass commodities yet, but the form is there. And that form fundamentally hasn't changed. It's just kind of become more widespread. You know, people have always been alienated from their labor and what they produce and how to live. Um, mm. Now it's like, they're completely alienated from their time as well and from their history yeah. and from like the memory of that history and from experiences overall. I mean, at least in the 19th century, this also has to do with like other, like two Marxist concepts. Um, Jesus, I know one is real subsumption and the other one is not false subsumption, but something similar. One is basically like how Capitalism, Marx develops this in, in capital, I don't remember where, but how capital basically like mounts itself on non-capitalistic ways of organizing labor. So like indentured labor could be like an example of that or the exploitation uh, of like pre-modern labor. I think that kind of synthesizes it. And real subsumption is just like capitalism creating society altogether. Um, Spectacle emerges in that, I think. I don't know what point I was trying to get at. But <laughs> what I got even more one? confused with those with those two those two concepts. What was the first one? Real subsumption. Real subsumption, and the other one isn't. Again, it's not like false subsumption, but it's something similar. Something like that. I don't think. Again, you, you touched upon like like wouldn't all those things be good? But because it democratizes. I mean, it massifies them, but they're not like readily accessible for everyone. Like, who can actually buy a martini and pretend they're James Bond? I mean, but I, mean I don't have enough money to do that, for instance. You know, but I mean, more people than would have been able to before. But why? I, okay, yes, you know, even considering that, uh, why would they want to do that? There's still, like, alienation in that, in, like, trying to imitate James Bond. Does that make any sense? Mm. It's still an alienated uh, experience. But then surely being able to come that little bit closer to that culture if we're using James Bond as the, as the example, <laughs> then, like, surely that's not an alienating experience. Surely that is a democratizing experience. I think the board would, would have a, a different perspective on that, and he would say, no, that's mass culture, that's still alienating. It's produced under the spectacle, it forms part of the spectacle. And I think that the only, like, I, like I, non-alienating experience of art would be something similar to, um, like, this, like, situation is disruption, something close to, like, like political and social political insurrections, revolts, that kind of stuff. We, yeah, he, we he would also say that that like breaks the. So the only real art is the art that the board makes. No, no, <laughs> he, he didn't. He didn't make it. I mean, <laughs> no. Well, here's one example. So yeah, this, 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 this maybe likes. <laughs> this is maybe. Uh, this is maybe. Uh, he says um, the footnote to one thirty nine. I don't know if anyone noticed. Relative to everything else, he, he doesn't think it's the same as whatever authentic communism. Um, but the Renaissance, he says, was a joyous break with eternity. Um, though seeking its heritage and legitimacy in the ancient world, it represented a new form of historical life. So it's irreversible time, so they had this sense of time. 
but it was a never-ending accumulation of knowledge and the historical consciousness engendered by the experience of democratic communities and of the forces that destroyed them now took up once again with Machiavelli, the analysis of secularized power, blah, 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 blah. Life is experienced in the exuberant life of the Italian cities, in the creation of festivals, life is experienced as an enjoyment of the passage of time. And he writes in the footnote to that, um, he added to the preface of the fourth Italian edition, Du Bois says that a, a liberated society, whatever that might be in the future, will, will be like, quote, the reappearance of an Athens or Florence from which no one will be excluded, extended to all the reaches of the earth. So that's pretty specific, that the Renaissance was, and the, I bring it up because the Renaissance is also the birth of what, European art, right? I mean, mm -hmm. is that, is, is that a, I, I don't know, art history, is that a contentious claim? It certainly seems to me that that's, art was going on then. I just think that's a bit contentious. What, what, what do, but what do you guys make of that? Well, but I mean, then he's just talking, surely is, is this not just like a romanticization of these ancient civilizations that weren't actually as democratic? But why the Renaissance in particular? I mean, he doesn't, he mentions Greece. Actually, he mentions Athens and says, um, Greece was the moment when power and changes in power were first debated and understood. It was a democracy of the masters of society. So they, they had this idea of like democracy. We can get together and have democracy, but they're still alienated in the sense that it's, yeah, just a democracy of the masters of society. They're not aware that, you know, the, the idea underpinning democracy for Debord that you and I, we can just talk about what we want to do with our lives, we, we can decide. Um, but that, you know, all those people over there, you can't have that same connection. So that's the alienation in, in Greece. But I, I do think the Renaissance sticks out in, in a very particular way, like a moment of something for Du Bois. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what you guys think about that. Are you allowed to pick favorites in history? <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> yes, and, and of course, like, like subversive or true art will be <clears throat> definitely the one that he prefers. That's kind of like what everyone does at the end of the day, you know? But then I still don't understand, surely, by this definition that you two gave, if you pay money for any of this, mm -hmm. then you're alienated from it immediately, just yes. by virtue of the fact that you paid money for it. Yes, it's a commodity. I mean, that, that already implies uh, like advanced degree of alienation. You know, like in material terms, first of all, the fact that, that whoever produced this or this or et cetera got uh, value extracted from them, alienated from them, okay. taken apart from them. And that value can also be measured in time, so also time taken away from them. How would so, that be different in a... So, for instance, I would, you know, I'd pay for this with money, and in, in order to get that money, value was also, value and time were also extracted from me, so there's, like, alienation basically mediating every, like, economic relationship in life mm. as, as under capitalism. How would that be different under a socialist society? Because uh, then you just, the, com the commodities are still going to be exchanged, just being a middleman of money. I don't think so. I mean, that under state socialism, but I don't think that under communism, as he is understanding, there would be like exchange of commodities. There wouldn't be like production of commodities in the first place. I don't think that the, the commodity figure or form would exist under communism. That's kind of the, the point of it. Commodities are like specific to capitalism. Commodities were not produced in like in you know, in the 1200s or in the, in like the medieval times or, or even before in ancient times. It's something specific to capitalism. And, and so the like relationship of mankind to like objects in communism would not imply the commodity form, if that makes any sense. Diego knows more about capital than I do. <laughs> so the reading groups. Um, I will just add that this is famous quote from Marx. Capital is not a thing. It is a social relationship between people that is mediated by things. So it's treating a thing as a commodity. And Du Bois says at the very beginning, 
the spectacle is not a collection of images. It is a social relation between people that is mediated by images. It's not like there's just too many images nowadays or there's just too many commodities in the 1800s. It's that like you're treating this thing as a commodity in the same way. It's like that's just an image. It's like you guys read uh, uh, Walter Benjamin mm. in this group, right? I remember you, you said you didn't like it. <laughs> I just found it incomprehensible. When you said that, I'm like, well, you know, he has to, he already voted for divorce. So. <laughs> but it's a similar idea, right? Like this thing. Okay. It's a picture. A picture is a picture. It's what it is. But you're treating the picture as an image is the same way you treat a thing as a commodity, right? I mean, like, it's a certain relationship you have to it. It's just the image. It's just that. It can't be anything else. Okay, then I, I don't understand the semantics of image and picture, then. Well, I don't know. Then, then we're getting into the... Okay, I, under, capitalism. I, I also struggle with that yeah, one, but, but I understand the, the difference between an object and a commodity a bit better. I think, you know, an object is just something that you would use like a chair I'm using right now to sit. And a commodity or a chair in its commodity form is a chair that's exchangeable for money or for other commodities. That make any sense? Sure. I mean that's how I also would have would have framed it, but then I don't understand how they're not commodities and uh misconception of the communists. Well. My feeling is just that exchange of objects is fundamental to every society that ever existed. Not necessarily. Why? You know? So you just why, why do you exchange stuff? Because someone produces like specific thing and another one produces another specific thing. But that doesn't, you know, that as far as I know, hasn't happened throughout time. Or I mean, I dare you to find one society that hasn't done that. Yeah, well, there's communes that haven't done that. Even contemporary ones, they don't exchange stuff. Well, where like, is, like, <laughs> of self, course they do. Self-production, auto-production. Well, where yeah. every individual is self-sufficient. No way. Or the commune, like in its entirety, yeah. Sure, yeah. but the commune the, itself, but the commune but then exists. individuals, yeah, individuals yeah, because what the still. commune, what the commune produces, belongs to everyone who forms part of the commune. So they don't have to exchange stuff amongst themselves. We should avoid a like a moral assessment of you know communism that it's like they will just be nicer about the exchange to like an instrumental one that it's like yeah. everything we need to produce in society, which capitalism produces. Some, I mean, we're still alive, so it's producing some things. At least the four of us are still alive. Uh, it's, it's producing some things that, that we need and use, um, but it's not what everyone on the whole earth has decided what, what we need to produce and use. But it's this, this agency over the what's produced. Using this, this, commune, this specific commune example, even if the product itself isn't commodified in the fact that it belongs to everyone from the moment of its conception, surely there's still a commodification of the time that people are allowed to spend using this object. So then you still have some sense of alienation in Debord's conception of it, because time itself is then commodified, surely, because not everyone can be using it at the same time. And there has to be compromises made, and these compromises you could easily look at as deals. Yeah, but, but a deal is not, I mean, doesn't, not the same thing as alienating or as an alienated relationship, I, I wouldn't say so. You know, if, if we all like partook in the creation of this object, say like a bike or something, mm. and, and we agree upon like a specific use of the bike, like I'm going to use it Mondays, you're going to use it Tuesdays, blah, blah, blah. Where's, where's the alienation there? Or why is that deal or agreement an alienated uh, relationship? Based on like the, my understanding of alienation, because then it's still, you're still like making a deal. And in some sense, the bike is still being commodified. It belongs to one person on the Monday. It belongs to another person on the Tuesday. Whether or not you say it belongs to everyone all the time, it doesn't if not everyone can use it all the time. 
So there's still some form of commodification here, even if it's just through borrowing and lending. I think there's a difference between usage and propriety. Is that the, yeah. the word, the noun? Uh, it doesn't belong or no one owns the bike. There's just like an agreement on who can use it on specific days. But that seems to me like you, semantics, it, really. Yeah, because I, I mean, I think there's a difference I between usage. If I buy a bike today, then there's also an agreement by the rule of money that I can use the bike whenever. I mean, that is a by different kind of contract, but it's still a contract. By the rule of money, that's different than producing, that everyone producing an object that they can all share afterwards. The bike is also a problematic example because it's something that only one person can use at a time. But say, if it's like a mill or like a workshop or I don't know what, I mean, all those things can be used by multiple persons at the same time. Sure, but the problem still exists for the things that can only be used by one person at one time. So the solution I, to I guess the solution is to build a shop and build, you know, a shit ton of bikes for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be yeah. like, like the first one that comes to mind. I mean, to get back to Renaissance, exuberant life of the Italian cities in the creation of festivals, life is experienced. This seems to me like a, yay, live in the moment, have a festival <laughs> kind of, kind of thing which definitely probably did not reflect the reality of life in the Italian cities for many people many and more importantly seems like a very unrealistic to ideal uh, ideal to hold for for a society if that is the utopia or a version of the utopia yeah well I mean he does address that in the sense that in the footnote it's the liberated society will be the renaissance but for the whole world truly truly like not anybody left out for um, those who are enjoying the renaissance in italy at least yeah. Yeah. that's why he also criticizes athens as being you know democracy but only of the rulers i think he like specifies so but yeah i don't i don't know about the renaissance i don't have much of an attachment to it <laughs> yeah. he did for whatever did. reason I'd just like to know how this Federation of Independent Times would work. <laughs> it's a good question. So we didn't touch on it that much, but with the cyclical, the pseudo-cyclical time, it's this reimposition that like, you have to be organized, everyone who's producing things for society, they have to be organized in a certain way. Like how are we going to get all these people to make, I don't know, rubber that we need, or let's say the, get the minerals, mine the minerals that people need for their smartphones. Um, there has to be a strict system, not only of their, well, not only what they're physically doing, but what they're mentally processing like. Those are the rules. I got to work this amount and then I got to sleep and then I can't do that. And then there's like some dangle. I don't know about vacations and, and, and minds, but like there's like, you know, some idea of that, like, oh, real life will happen at some time, you know, but not now or something. And so the whole idea is that isn't that an absurd thing to say philosophically? Real life will happen some other time, but whatever this is right in this moment isn't living. That's that's the fundamental thing that the board gets back to, which is like. We're all humans, we should all live. And how do you do that? And this Federation of Independent Times is then people would have their own conceptions of... of yeah, of I guess. Time. Or of their own meanings, of their own, why they do what they do, why they get up in the morning, I guess. But don't they? But why but, do but they? But it's all... <laughs> 167. I mean, why, why do people get up in the morning? Yeah, to work. I mean, don't they, of course, but, but it, we're all under to, you know, a greater or lesser extent, the coercion of, of capital. Even, even like, the most, like, stereotypical bourgeois that you can think of, even that person also will have to get up in the morning and probably work some amount, or not even work, but, like, 
manage or mm. organize something, you know. Um, but I mean, you're still gonna have to work under a communist society. Well, okay, but then work is like uh, the same thing as commodity. So there's labor and wage labor, right? Or are there more categories? Those are the main ones. <laughs> that like labor, Marx thinks labor is fundamentally is the most human thing you can do. Mm. Do what you want. Wage labor is the problem. Uh-huh. Alienating yourself from the labor that it's something that whatever you produce, it's not your thing. It's just. Um, yours you, had, you had to do it for some law or some reason you can't even think about why it exists uh, I would say one thing about Marxist ontology one thing about history um, the first would be about Marxist ontology a simple way of saying that is what does the board does the board add anything is it like just read Marx why do you have to read this guy you know in, in order to understand it I would say the element of time and thinking about the way people think about their lives is valuable and it definitely helped me Help me personally, like understand Marxist concepts better. I would say, um, because he's always making these analogies. Honestly, the federal you think could just be, in the same way that like these kind of, I don't know his tradition. We'll say like council communist, left communist. Um, mm-hmm. In the same way, they're like the world should be a federation of you know, like in the Spanish Civil War uh, after the Spanish Civil War and like these kind of you know left formations. He could honestly being like that in politics. Time also without really like investing that much analysis in it because he's always like surface value of time you know he's always like his whole point is that like we should analyze time as a as a thing um the reason that it's i think it's an important addition is that everything about marxism it's materialist analysis i think it explains pretty well why the world works the way it is but du Bois is a little bit more a theorist of revolution in the sense that revolutionaries the people who you know wanted whether it's the proletariat or whatever they you know at some level they like think about the problem and decide to do something and that the yeah, board right. makes a connection between natural human societal history and an individual's life mm-hmm. birth life death and that they relate one to the other you know they're like this is how human history has changed and why this revolutionary class of which i declare myself a part of or I'm objectively a part of or whatever that has to act in some way and me in my life I also have a time maybe I don't have a history maybe that's not the right word but I have a time and I will also decide to act in this way and it's the relationship between those two and following on from that if we make it like as practical as we can yeah. in order to sort of really hit the point of this seminar <laughs> how would you be able to use this or how could we use this when we were writing ourselves you know it's my first semester uh, so I'm thinking about my first paper and I want to write about the idea of the end of history debate which people know I think that's like Fukuyama in 1989 uh, and a lot of people like Samuel Moyne they talk about human rights and this different idea of they talk about kind of like the 70s there's this idea of like the presentist the presentism of suffering and this display is not like this like communal uh, rights of like this is why we're revolutionaries we're fighting it's a human right it's a single it's kind of abstracted uh, and I think that does a lot of good work I think it should connect I think it goes back further to a lot of the debates on the 60s hmm. and why revolutionary I mean it's voluntarism it's like the time is now we have to act now you know which there has to be some connection between that time of acting now mm-hmm. and the end of history and board kind of adds a little theoretical substance um, so in that sense, I would say it's, as historians, we have to be aware of the history now in the sense of how, do, how people understand history. I think history, I would agree with the board in the sense that it's very liberating. You know, if you're just some guy, you can think, 
I open a book or a primary source and think, okay, guy, I mean a gender, gender neutral sense. <laughs> There's also just some guy. Uh, well, if we're looking at sources, it might, you know, definitely more guys, sadly. But that was also just some guy, you know, that okay, makes me happy in some way. In, in a, and I think that's in a, more, in a more immediate sense than a lot of other social sciences can. Um, so I, I definitely feel that, like, humanism and history, I think Du Bois does too. So it's more of reading it <clears throat> makes you feel almost makes worthy you feel good. yourself. And I think, but no, no, history. and I think it can somehow be more, like, how do you convince someone to read some sociological book, you know, whatever? I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's relevant for you or your field, read it. Yeah. But history, whether it's relevant for the field or not, it's like, you're a person, I'm a person, read about these people. They also lived. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So something about history, that's why, that's why I'm a story. It's a nice way of looking at it. <laughs> Any other ideas of how we could use some to board? Nope. <laughs> Alex is going to forget it as soon as we, as soon as we leave this room. You're going to try, but it'll come back to you. Uh, I okay. promise. Come to haunt me. <laughs> okay. So I have an idea, but like, why, why not? Or why, why do you think it's useless? <sighs> It's, first of all, I don't understand it completely. <laughs> okay, okay. Let's begin there. And that's probably the most important reason. And then I can go on to bash it, why I don't like it. But probably at the root of that is I don't understand it. Maybe one, one reason is because you don't find it like applicable to reality. Or you, or you don't think that it's something that has to do with reality. Like how the world operates nowadays. Yeah, I think, I think I have a very different... Yeah, yeah. Not enough what the world is, but I mean, I wouldn't call it a vision because I don't really, you know, that would be overstating the garbled thoughts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, you know, just like kind of simplifying it a lot is this book is like, like a Marxist in a not like orthodox Marxist way, but like a Marxist, Marxist uh, critique of time and how time can also become alienated and and how it's like just like one one of the other things that, that capitalism commodifies and alienates. I think that's kind of like how I understand it. And you think that so you could be a useful idea when you're writing yourself? Yeah, obviously not in like mythological issues. You know, I mean, he he sucks in, in, in that aspect, of course. You know, mm. and and if you're not writing from like a, a Marxist you know, viewpoint or 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 even like. A viewpoint that's mildly critical of capitalism. This is completely useless. Of course, you know that's let's face it. You know, but um, if you're writing from that, from there, from that position, I think it's it's completely it's worthwhile. All right. Cool. Thanks very much. Thank you.